Well, it's funny. God must have it in for you all today because I did not plan this with Laura, but I, my plan is to make you a little bit uncomfortable too. So we're going to get even a little bit more uncomfortable here this morning. So we're going to do an exercise. And like I said, that's going to make some of you uncomfortable, but believe it or not, it's good to get uncomfortable in church once in a while. So what I'm going to ask you to do is I'm going to ask everybody to raise both of their hands, whether it's up in the air, whether it's even just like this or just like this, whatever you're willing to do, but I'm asking you to raise your hands. Okay, step one, good job, we're doing okay. Don't get too uncomfortable yet. Okay, first question, put a hand down if you have never in your life even told one little white lie. Okay, all right, put a hand down if you have never stolen anything, even a toy from a sibling, a second off the clock, or an M&M from a friend. If you're putting your hand down right now, you might be doing what I asked you not to do, number one. Okay, final one. Put a hand down if you have never said anything negative ever about anyone or been angry or bitter with someone. If you have both of your hands down right now, you're either lying or you should be up here instead of me. All right, you can go ahead and lower your arms, but I am going to ask you to do one more thing. Keep them down, but keep them in front of you and keep your palms up. And I want you to think about the position you're in right now. You are in a position to receive. With your arms stretched out and your palms turned heavenward, you are in a position to receive the kindness, compassion, and forgiveness of Christ. Okay. You can cross your arms. You can relax. I release you from this exercise. You can can relax. But I hope you get the point. That as we walk through this passage, you will recognize the things that you are to give because you have already received them from Christ. Our scripture reader for this morning is John Silvers. So John, go ahead and make your way to the podium. If you're able, that we, we would ask that you please stand and face the center of the room. We face the center of the room to remind us that scripture is to be a central part of our lives. And we stand because this is indeed the authoritative word of God. So John, whenever you're ready, you may go ahead and read our scripture for this morning from Ephesians 4, verses 22 through 32. You are taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. If you if your anger in your anger. Do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, 
doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the, the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you are sealed for the, day of for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Thank you, John. You may all be seated. This passage is often uh, regarded as one for how to live Christianly. In fact, the NIV of, uh, title of this passage is Instructions for Christian Living. But as human beings, we experience many of those things that Paul is talking about. We react to others in traffic with a solo finger wave. We call someone a name under our breath. Or any other form of malice, which just means we have ill intention towards another. We also live in a humanistic culture, right? But I think no matter your worldview, many of these things in this passage are good instruction. Don't lie. Don't steal. Don't gossip. Don't verbally or physically abuse. I think that we could bring a lot of people in here from a lot of different backgrounds and worldviews and ask them if these are good things and they would agree with us. They would say yes. We can look at this passage and so can someone who doesn't follow Christ and they would say these are good good things, their moral behavior. So what makes these instructions, instructions for Christian living, rather than just for instructions for a moral life? Well, if we go back to the beginning of the passage, I think we can see the answer and why it's different for those who choose to follow Christ. We can see it at both the beginning and the end of this passage because Paul actually bookends the passage with it. But first I want to go back to verses 22 through 24. Paul says, You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, Created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. See, Paul frequently in his writings uses language surrounding the old way of living versus the new way of living. Because we have been justified in Christ Jesus. And so here he explicitly states that we are to put off the old self, our former way of life. Now, this is not put off like you might put off mowing the lawn where eventually you just got to do it. No, this is to put off as in a shedding of, once, of, what was, of what once was. It is a renunciation of your way of life, a turning away from. But the difficulty of this lies in verse 22 because we are inherently selfish. So often we chase after our own desires. 
But this instruction that Paul is giving us is not to be done out of selfishness. Because if it's done from a place of selfishness, it's not truly kind or truly compassionate. It now simply becomes moral behavior. It simply becomes the same thing that any other worldview would promote. But for Christians, it's actually different. And I want to show you how. I want to show you how our compassion is compromised by the improper attitude of both selfish and moral living. And I want to do so through one of my favorite stories. It's a story of Jesus. It's one of his parables. The parable of the prodigal son. Now many of you may know this story, and if you don't, that's okay. I'm happy to share it with you. The story is found in the Gospel of Luke, verse, uh, chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. And I'm not going to read the whole story, but I do want to give you a summary, and I do want to think about it in depth. So here it goes. Now, Jesus introduces an anonymous man who has two sons. The younger of the two sons, the little brother, in his defiance, goes to his father one day and asks for his inheritance. Now, in Jesus' time, in a patriarchal society, this is something you simply did not do. And the listeners of this story would know that. He was saying, Dad, I want your money. I don't plan on returning. Have a good life. So long. See you later. This is the defiance of the younger son. The father complies. And he gives him his third of the estate. Because in that culture too, the oldest son received the majority of the land. So with two sons, the oldest son would receive two-thirds and the younger son receive one-third. So he gets his one-third. He goes off and he lives this wild lifestyle. Jesus tells us he squanders all of his wealth on wild living. And eventually finds himself broke with no place to go. Now, finally, at some point, he starts to come to his senses and says, Wait a minute. Even my dad's hired hands, my dad's servants, have a roof over their head and food on the table. I'll go back home, I'll work for my dad as a servant, and then at least I can survive. I'll be provided for. So the younger son returns home, and he's walking home, I'm sure with his head down, his shoulders slumped over, feeling ashamed, especially as his father's house starts to come into view on the horizon. But then all of a sudden, something happens. He must have seen this figure running towards him in the distance. Or maybe he heard the thumping of running footsteps, especially in those sandals that we picture biblical characters wearing. But before he knows it, before he can even say a word, the younger brother is being held in the embrace of his father who's now hugging him and kissing him. And the son tries to apologize, and he gets a confession out, but it's all he can do because the father doesn't even acknowledge it. 
Rather, in his joy, the father brings the home the son home to celebrate that his son has returned. He says, my son is alive. We have to celebrate. We have to throw a party. The younger son doesn't know what's happening. And we'll come back to him in just a second and to the first half of the story in a little bit. But remember, there's another character in this story as well. There's the older brother. He hasn't been in the story up to this point. He's not there when the father embraces the younger brother. It says he's been out in the field all day and he's returning home from work, I'm sure, tired and sweaty when he too, all of a sudden, sees or hears something peculiar. For there's music and dancing coming from the house. And so he calls over one of the servants and he says, what's going on? What's happening at the house? And the servant says, your brother has come home. He's alive. And your dad's throwing a party to celebrate. Now, if you have younger siblings and they're rebels, tell me how you think the older brother's feeling right now. About the fact that his younger brother ran off to do who knows what. Completely disrespected the family. And one day just wanders home and the dad throws him a party. How do you think he feels? He's mad, right? He's angry. He's bitter. He says, I'm not going into that party. He walked out. He hasn't apologized to me. What do I owe him? Nothing. So then again, in this patriarchal society, think about what happens. The father goes out to the older son and pleads with him. This is a society where you did not disrespect or question the patriarch, the father. And yet the brother refuses to go in. He almost literally spits in the face of the father saying, are you kidding me? He squandered everything. He went and lived like a fool. And yet you're throwing him a party. You've never thrown me a party. He's blown all your money. And you're just welcoming him back with open arms. Are you kidding me? I have slaved away for you for years and you've never thrown me a party. And yet the father looks at his son and says, Son, you have never wanted for anything because everything I have is yours. But the older brother is enraged. He's bitter. He's angry. He slanders. He speaks poorly of both his brother and his father. And in this story, both of the sons are the older self that Paul is talking about. Because both of the sons are rooted in deceitful desires. Are rooted in selfishness. The younger has gone off and done whatever he pleased. He was a fool. He was completely selfish. 
The older brother has been morally upright his entire life. He has never disobeyed the father. He has never asked for anything. He's only ever expected it. But you see, that's the problem, church. Both of the brothers expected it. Both of the brothers had a sense of entitlement. The younger brother thought he could just go do whatever he wanted. He didn't have to live by anyone else's rules. The younger brother thought he put in the work. He put in the time. And now he, gets, he expects the reward. And again, it's important to understand first century inheritance laws to, to know what's happening. So I want to show you on the screen. You can see this box and this box box would be the land, it would be the property that the father owns. And when the patriarch dies, that land is split up among the sons. And so with two sons, the older son getting a majority, it would look something like this, where the elder son gets two-thirds and the younger brother gets the, the other third. And so, again, the younger brother didn't really want the land, he wanted the money, he wanted the wealth. So he goes to the father, asks for that, his father complies, he takes it and he goes and he squanders it. So now the father's property looks something like this. But here's the thing. This is what happens when the father welcomes the younger brother back into the family. Do you see what's happened? The younger son comes back into the family, but he, when he returns, he says, Father, I'm no longer worthy. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. I don't deserve anything. I know. I messed up. I screwed up. I shamed our family. I admit it. Just let me be like one of your hired men. I'll work for food. That's all I want. And that's his plan. But that's not what the father does. It says the father gave him a robe and a ring and, a, and sandals, all of which signify status and acceptance. A hired hand did not wear a robe. A hired hand did not get a signet ring, which signified that the father was bringing the younger son back into sonship. So you see where this is going, that when the son left and he squanders his father's wealth, it reduced the father's property to this. It cost the father part of his property. And it cost him his son, too. But it costs him part of his property. And when he welcomes him back, now what happens? When the father gives the younger son the first third, it doesn't cost the older brother anything. But when he brings the younger son back in, now the older brother's the one who's paying the price. Now it's costly for him. And our worship director, Ryan, actually did the math, which is something I actually didn't catch, and it makes the story all the more radical, is that if you do the math, the younger son actually ends up receiving more inheritance than the older brother. Because in the end, the younger son receives five-ninths of the property. Because he receives a new third of the property. And so he receives five-ninths of the total property, while the older brother receives four-ninths. That's costly. So now with all that in view, think about what Paul is trying to teach us. If you do these things, if you follow these instructions simply to receive what you expect, what you believe to be yours, that's just moral behavior like the older son. 
That's just pride and selfishness. It's no different than the younger son running off and living however he pleases, making up his own rules. But Paul says, be made new in the attitudes of your minds to put on the new self in Christ Jesus. Again, there's that verb, to put. Only this time, it means to be clothed in or to be covered And here's something that's really interesting and it's really fascinating to me. And I want to point this out because it's tiny, but it's significant. What does it say about the old self and the new self? It says, put off your old self. It's possessive. Put off your old self and put on the new self. The new self. No longer possessive but belonging to the body of Christ. And Paul says that when you lie, when you are bitter, when you resent, when you slander, when you do any of those things, you are doing it not only to others, but you're doing it to the body of Christ and you're doing it to yourself. You're lying, you're you're costing yourself. But you see, the new self Paul defines as the body of Christ that is created righteous and holy. It's about being selfless. It's about unconditional love. Not conditional like the sons thought. You see, the sons thought it was what they deserved. Church, that's moral living. That's not transformational. The new self is transformational. The older brother lived morally for himself. Paul says that now because of what Jesus has done for us, we live not out of obligation or duty, but out of gratitude. Pastor Tim Keller tells a story about a woman who came up to him one Sunday after a sermon, and she had grown up in the church, but she had gotten away from the church because she had always been taught that you had to do everything right to be acceptable to God. If you wanted to be accepted by God, you had to do the right thing. You couldn't possibly be accepted by sheer grace. But this was the first time she was hearing a message like this, that she could be accepted by God regardless of what she had done or will do. And her answer to that was, That's scary. It's a good scary, but it's still scary. And so Tim asked, why? And she replied, because if I'm saved by good works, then there's a limit to what God can ask of me. Or what he can put me through. Like a taxpayer with rights, I would have done my duty, and now in return, I deserve a certain quality of life. But if it's really true that I'm a sinner, saved by sheer grace, at God's infinite cost, then there's nothing he cannot ask of me. If we are forgiven in God's sheer grace, we have to forgive others no matter the cost. What that woman understood is that forgiveness is costly 
And that forgiveness stands at the very center of God's unconditional love. And that it should stand at the very center of our love for others. When the Apostle Peter asks Jesus, How many times should I forgive? Seven? Jesus says, No. Seventy times seven. As we close this morning, I want to turn our attention to the other book and the last verse of this passage because it holds the key to all of this. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Church, that is the message of the gospel that changes everything, that sets us free. When the father saw his boy on the horizon, broken in suffering, before he even heard a word, an excuse, an explanation, or anything out of his mouth, he was filled with compassion. Not anger or resentment, but it says when he saw the boy still a long way off, he was filled with compassion. He doesn't ask for answers. He doesn't seek justice or retribution, but he expresses gratitude that this son that he thought was dead is still alive, that his beloved son has returned home. The son did a lot of foolish things. And I'm sure to some extent the father probably felt some anger. But yet the father chose compassion while the older brother was filled with resentment. So we have a choice. There is no doubt that when other people wrong us, wound us, lie to us, hurt us in any way, it cuts deep. Sometimes to our very core. And yet the Father chooses compassion, not rage, not bitterness, not brawling or slander or any other form of malice. When someone offends us, we choose how to react. Now I know that is much easier said than done. And Paul says that very same thing in our passage. He says, in your anger, do not sin. He doesn't say you'll never be angry. He doesn't say you can't be angry. But he says, in your anger, do not sin. Do not do something out of anger that is going to cause you to have to turn around and apologize to someone else. And he says, don't go to bed angry. Don't allow it to fester. Because the longer you allow it, to fester the, the longer or the more it will take root in you. That it will start to become bitterness, rage, brawling, and slander. And he says, then it will become the very foothold of the devil. Again, I don't doubt that there was some level of anger in the father. He must have felt something like that. But it says he chose to be filled with compassion and forgiveness. Again, I know, easier said than done. 
Because forgiveness is costly. It costs the forgiver. And so often we want to justify our sin. Even if it's subconsciously, we think or say to ourselves, no one will find out. No one will ever know. It won't hurt anyone else. Or it's just a little sin, I'll make up for it. But Paul, but Paul says when you do that, you hurt the body. You hurt yourself. And we've all done it, right? How many hands were still raised when we did the exercise? We've all done it, but why do we do it? Well, Paul and Jeremiah both tell us it's because the heart is deceitful. Above all things and beyond cure, the heart is deceitful. It is selfish. It is prideful. And if we don't allow our hearts to be transformed by the forgiveness and compassion of the Father, we will never see past ourselves. That even the people we care about the most in our lives, we will never truly care about them because we will only do what we need to to get from them what we want. It's only self-serving. In our depravity, like Pastor Chuck talked about a couple weeks ago, so often we treat God's forgiveness like a free ride, like a handout, the easy road. But guess what? That's nowhere in the Bible. That's nowhere in Scripture. In fact, Jesus' very words are opposite. He says, in this life, you will have trouble. That's not real encouraging. Why do you think the younger brother did whatever he wanted? He thought, well, I'll just look out for me, myself, and I. I don't have to put up with being picked on by my older brother. I'll just look out for me, myself, and I. But he was a fool. He was selfish. He was greedy. And it cost him dearly. The older brother, why do you think he always followed the rules? Because he had it backwards. He thought, if I do all the right things, I'll get the reward. That cost him dearly, too. They didn't have the right attitudes in their mind. Both of them found trouble. Paul tells us, but to have, but to transform the attitude of our minds. And what does Jesus say after he says, you will have trouble? He says, take heart, for I have overcome the world. One ends up broken and alone. The other narcissistic and unfulfilled. But the father had compassion on both. The father was willing to give up everything for both. But forgiveness is not free. Forgiveness is not free, but it is freedom. And I know I'm getting a little long-winded here, but this is so important, so please just bear with me a couple more minutes. Forgiveness is not free, but it is freedom. 
Forgiveness is not a feeling. It is a choice. If you wait to feel like forgiving the offender, it won't happen. It will fester until it turns into bitterness, rage, all of those things. Forgiveness is not trusting. It is offered without any apology or evidence of change by the offender. Trust is conditional. It is up to the offender. It is, it is conditional on the offender choosing to change. Forgiveness is not reconciling. If the offender is not repentant and doesn't actually change, you can't reconcile. But if they are repentant and they actually change, then you can reconcile. But regardless of if you can reconcile or not, you can still forgive. Forgiveness is not instantaneous. It is a constant choosing to let go of the debt, the bitterness, the rage, the resentment. Forgiveness is not forgetful. If you could just forget, forgiveness wouldn't be necessary and healing would never be possible. Forgiveness is not excusing. It does not excuse any sinful action. It's trusting that God will be the judge, not you. And finally, forgiveness is not accepting. It is not tolerating or accepting that things are just the way they are, that someone is just the way they are, and they're never going to change, and allowing them to continue sinning against you. It's not that. And so if forgiveness is none of these things, then it's really not for the offender. It's for the offended. If you make the conscious choice to forgive, you are making the conscious choice to live into the freedom of God's unconditional love. There is research that proves the psychological trauma and repercussions of unforgiveness. And there is overwhelming research and evidence that proves the psychological freedom and growth in emotional capacity of those who do choose forgiveness. The offender will have to answer to repent or not to repent. And they may or may not choose to do that with you. I recently read a story of Lloyd LeBlanc. Some of you may know it, but Lloyd LeBlanc's son was brutally murdered. And when he went to identify the body of his son in the field, he knelt down and he said the Lord's Prayer. And when he came to the words, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, he paused. And he said, whoever did this, I forgive them. He never denied that he continued to struggle with his emotions, with all of it. 
but he chose forgiveness in the worst of circumstances. He chose kindness and compassion over bitterness and resentment. We are to be kind and compassionate, to forgive as God has forgiven through the infinite cost of himself, the death of his son on the cross. The son who, after teaching his disciples that very prayer, says, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly father will surely forgive you. Church, do not compromise the compassion you have already received in the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. We're going to end, and if you know the Lord's Prayer, um, I ask that you pray with me. And when we get to the line of forgiveness, I just want to take a moment to pause. And in that moment, if there's something or someone that's on your heart, if you're holding on to something that you need to let go of, if you're stuck in a cycle, I just want to give you a moment to lift that up before God, to let him take that burden from you. So if you would, will you pray with me? The words will be on the screen as well. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Brothers and sisters in Christ, receive this blessing. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.